In this episode, we speak with Greg Johnson, the CEO of Invoca. Greg is a seasoned software leader who previously led Salesforce Marketing Cloud's social marketing product line, where he integrated $1 billion of M&A investments into the Salesforce product portfolio. He is also a successful entrepreneur. Invoca is the cloud leader in AI-powered conversation intelligence for revenue teams that enables marketing, sales, customer experience, and e-commerce teams to understand and immediately act on the information consumers share via connections. The company has raised $184 million from leading venture capitalists, including Upfront Ventures, Excel, Silver Lake Waterman, HIG Growth Partners, and Salesforce Ventures. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. Greg, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. No problem. I always enjoy it. So appreciate you having me on. Notice something quite interesting. Early in your career, you started out as an entrepreneur and you quickly grew and sold a tech company. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's funny. I always say to people, be careful of how much deliberate design you put into your career path because you never know where the world is going to take you. Ironically, I studied international relations in college and thought I was going to go work for the State Department all of my life or teach and then spent about five months at the American embassy in Greece. And I mean, being in Greece as a 20-year-old, I highly recommend it, like a fun thing to go do, but also learned that State Department wasn't for me. So after college, I went and worked in consulting for a few years and then had, uh, this was the late 90s in San Francisco. You know, everybody and their sister was starting a company. And I left to go start a company with a few colleagues. It was sort of the late 1990s version of robo-advisor type of company, like think about Wealthfront or something like that. So we were automating financial advice. And I had to get my hands dirty and actually had to teach myself to code, which I'd never done before to build a prototype for the product. And just sort of fell in love with software from there and have really worked in software in one form or another ever since. So a little bit of a bouncing ball that you don't quite intend to go exactly the way that it goes. And you sort of stay loose and go with where life takes you and hopefully find things that you're passionate about and you enjoy. Those kind of early experiences uh, can be formative. Were there things that you remember about that time that still stick with you? Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. And, And I'll just say for anyone who's looking for career advice, I always tell people that are just entering the workforce, people tend to get so oriented around how fast am I getting promoted? How quickly am I advancing? And I always say like the most important thing for you in your career is actually to make sure you're going the right direction. Like we have people who come into our organization, for example, in sales, and they're focused on how do they progress in sales so fast. I'm like, the first thing you should really be validating is, do you want to do sales for the next 30 years of your life? Because if you don't make that realization until later, the opportunity cost of switching becomes far more significant. And I think about, I went to business school and a lot of the people that I went to business school with were career switchers who you know, went from accounting to marketing. And when you make that change 10, 12 years into your career, the impact of that is really high. So I always encourage people like, make sure you're headed the right direction before you obsess over how fast you're going in that direction. But no, I'd say for me, the moment that I really fell in love with software was sort of that eureka moment of learning to code and then building something and like hitting a button 
and just seeing a piece of software do its work without you doing anything and that source of tangibility and creating something that is going to exist and function without you for me it was just a really really neat experience again an experience that many other people in silicon valley probably would have had in their educational process taking an engineering or computer science class but i just i hadn't had the good fortune of doing that so that that was definitely the moment that i was hooked you mentioned earlier before we started chatting that you grew up in the south yep so you have a really interesting background grew up in the south and then you went out to california for college and i'm sure there there was some influence with silicon valley yeah you want to talk about again the bouncing ball and things that just happened by accident i was looking at going to schools in the south i didn't really look at the northeast it's too cold and i'd never been to california before so i sort of on a whim applied to school in california and came out to visit in the spring of my senior year of high school i'd never been to california before and i remember i came out on a thursday and i called my parents on either saturday or sunday basically said I'm not staying home to go to school. It was like, I have reached the promised land. And I just felt like sort of the mentality, the people that I met, the way of thinking, you know, even in that short time was very, very different. And so that was not something I dreamed of as a high schooler. It wasn't something I was anticipating. It just sort of happened to me. And then ever since I've lived in California, most of the past 25 years, the couple of years of exception in Europe on the East Coast, my wife's a Californian. All my kids are born and raised Californians now. And so I will never leave. <laughs> but yet again, sort of one of those things of learning to adapt and, and go with the flow and find the things that you love and you're passionate about and really be able to lean into them. So a little bit midway through your career, you start with Salesforce and have a very long, successful stint there. Everyone knows about Salesforce and Mark Benioff. What do you think it is that makes that place so special? So first for context, I joined in 2007 and the company was about 1500 people. And I left in 2016 when it was about 25 to 30,000. The company now is like 70 or 80,000 people. You know, there are a lot of things that make Salesforce special. And one of the things that I am constantly reminded of is the things that they took for granted at Salesforce don't exist in other places. It was by far the longest place I've ever worked. I was there nearly a decade. The longest place I've worked outside of that is my current tenure at Invoco, where I've been for six years. But I just assumed that companies ran the way that Mark ran Salesforce. And it wasn't until I left and talked to other people that I realized that wasn't true. And I mean, I'll give you an example. Another great leader that I really respect is a gentleman named Scott Dorsey, who is the founder and CEO of Exact Target. There's a company in the email marketing space that Salesforce bought in 2013. And I had the good fortune of working with that team between 2013 and 2016. And one of the things that Scott did that Mark did in different ways around communication and transparency with employees is Scott would write a note every Friday to the employee base and say sort of where he'd been that week, what he was seeing. And he did that in email, which was sort of a good use of the company's own product. I do that on Slack today, which is the 2022 version of it. And I have lots of people say to me, like, I really appreciate that you take the time to share your perspective and thoughts on what's going on in the company, the economy with customers every week. And for me, that's just like, that's part of a CEO job description. I'm like, why are you thanking me for doing my job? And so I think the level of transparency that Mark and other leaders in the business would share, I think one of the other things that's really amazing about Mark that I try to do as well is Mark has this uncanny ability to zoom out and zoom in. So he can zoom out and think about the five to 10 year trajectory of where the industry is going. He had this saying that he often says at Salesforce, which is 
you overestimate what you can do in a year and you underestimate what you can do in a decade, which if you look at especially the first 10 to 15 years of Salesforce's life was completely true. But then I can say one of the things that I always did, I worked on new and emerging products at Salesforce. I never worked on sales cloud. I never worked on service cloud. It was always something sort of new and small. And so I got more exposure to Mark than I would have if I had worked in a, in a bigger unit. And we would always joke around. We had a saying, um, which is beware of flying too close to the sun, which is if you were working on something that had Mark's attention, Mark would zoom in to the most granular level of detail. Like if you're launching a new product, you go into a meeting with Mark and you're like, hey, does the guy understand what this product is and who it's for? And five minutes into the meeting, he's like, hey, I noticed in the second paragraph of your copy on the website that you're describing the product this way. Are you sure that's the right value prop? So I think Salesforce really built this ability in leaders to zoom in and zoom out, to think about the big picture, but also it was not a culture of, oh, my team will go do that. It was a culture of rolling up your sleeves, getting stuff done, paying attention to details. And I think if you see the massive ecosystem of Salesforce alums who are now being successful, I think you see a lot of that attitude permeate the companies that they're in. So do you think it is that transparency and just consistent communication that enables a company to scale that quickly with that many people? For sure. And I would say one of my biggest learnings of being a CEO over the past six years is I spend a lot of time on communication. It's something that I put a lot of thought of attention to. I think I'm pretty good at. And yet, despite being relatively good at it, and despite putting a lot of time and attention to it, I consistently find that my efforts to drive communication and clarity to the company of only 400, 450 people still fall short. And I think that's certainly exacerbated by the world that we live in today, where our company now, like for example, when I joined the company, we had 70 or 80% of our employees in one location. Today, we have one office we have less than 10% of employees that are even in theory in that office. They're not even in that office day to day. We're an entirely remote company today. And so I think providing clarity in communication and what goals you're trying to do is crucially important. Salesforce is really good at that. They had a process called the V2 Mom, which you can read about. It's a way of articulating what are the company's priorities and really trying to drive that down in the organization. At Invoca, we have done something similar to that, but sort of created our own variant or flavor of it. And if you talk to any Salesforce alum, they have tended to do that in those companies because that way of communicating, what is the company trying to achieve? And then what can you as an individual team or an individual employee, how can you contribute to that goal? I think that was one of the ways that Salesforce uncorked a lot of creativity, a lot of motivation, a lot of great ideas. And, and I think that's one of the reasons they've been very successful in terms of what they've done. And has the culture and feel of Invoca changed due to this shift towards a more hybrid or remote model? In ways, yes. In ways, no. We were leaning into remote hiring even before the pandemic. I think like a lot of companies felt the pain most acutely around engineering talent and how do you find good engineering talent. And so we were already very focused on communication. We were already looking at bringing in people in different geographies. But I definitely think now we're trying to figure out what's the right operating system. You know, my background is a product manager. And as I like to say, you know, product managers are responsible for everything and the boss of no one. As a product manager, you're building a product with engineers, but the engineers don't report to you. You are launching products with the marketing team, but the marketing team doesn't report to you. You're trying to drive sales and successful customer deployments and the sales and customer success teams don't report to you. So you really have to build alignment through motivation, through connection, through people relationships. 
so I've been a big believer always in the power of human connection, but I'm like to think of myself as like a modern CEO, especially after COVID, like people are not going to come and work in the office five days a week the way they used to, like that era is over. But how do you find the right balance of those two things today? Like we had everyone in the company together for an offsite in August and people had an amazing time. And it wasn't like a traditional offsite where we were kind of doing one-to-many content. We spent most of the time teams actually getting together and physically doing work side-by-side side with one another. And everybody's like, this is amazing. This is so productive. When do we get to do this again? And I was like, that event cost a million dollars plus. We can't do that every month. And we're now a company that has employees in almost 30 states in four or five countries. And so trying to figure out what's the right blend of that power of in-person collaboration with the convenience, the flexibility of being remote. I mean, I don't think anybody's figured this out. Every time I'm with customers, they're kind of like, hey, have you figured it out? Because here's what I'm seeing. And so I think we're still trying to learn and adapt to what that means in the future. Now, when I look at the history of Invoca, it looks like it was founded around 2009, and then you came Correct. in around 2016, and then in a way, really kind of supercharged the business, brought in investors. We like to talk about investors and how they add value to the company. Can you tell us a little bit about what you saw coming into the company and how you could help drive growth forward? Yeah. One of the pieces of advice I have to people as they're thinking about new career opportunities is it's really important to think about the criteria of what you're looking for and what you want. Because if you don't have a good view coming into that, you're going to get sold into something by somebody else. And so for me, as I was leasing Salesforce, I wanted a company that had some degree of product market fit. Like I, I wasn't ready to go back. I had three young children at the time. I wasn't ready to go back and like tinker in the garage with something brand new. So I was looking at something that had product market fit. Invoco is probably about 15, 15 to 20 million in revenue when I joined. So clearly had a technology that was working with customers that found value in it. And then there were a couple of things that were really interesting to me. I had done a lot of work at Salesforce around unstructured data around conversational data. So that varied everything. I spent three or four years building a product called Chatter that was kind of a predecessor to Slack, uh, was around bringing the power of social network into the enterprise. And we spent a lot of time thinking about understanding intent and meaning out of that human-to-human conversation from an employee point of view. And then when I worked in Marketing Cloud, it was the early days of people adopting Twitter and Facebook for how they dealt with consumers. And so it spent a lot of time thinking about that. So I was looking for opportunities that were sort of at the intersection of marketing and CRM, but had a flavor of conversational data. And so when I joined Invoca, Invoca had been working for probably about a year or two about sort of understanding the conversations and the interactions that happen between consumers and big B2C brands. And this was before people had Alexa devices in their home or any of those things had really taken off around voice. And so I was really excited about the opportunity from the fact that these live conversations that brands have with their consumers are one of the most important touch points that you have and have all this rich information. And technology was changing in a way that was going to let you take more advantage of using automation and computers to understand what was happening and to be able to use that data to inform. So for me, there was sort of a screen around company size. There was a screen around kind of a technical problem. There was a screen around what area of the market. Like I didn't want to go in recruiting software, like financial planning software. That just didn't stimulate my brain in the same way. And then there was also a personal connection. So Upfront Ventures is the largest investor in Invoca. The managing director of Upfront is a gentleman named Mark Suster, who had sold a company into Salesforce about six months after I joined. 
And Mark didn't stay at Salesforce particularly long, but I ended up taking over product management for his team. And so we got to know each other. And the other thing for me, I'm pretty authentic as a leader. I'm not kind of a fake it till you make it person. I am who I am. And so it was important for me to go work with investors to where I had a trusted relationship where I could come in in day one and say, you know, I approached my first board meeting. I'm like, I don't know how board meetings work and all this hocus pocus around unanimous written consent. I'm just going to pretend like it's Mark Benioff meeting, which is like, what's your product? How do you talk about it? How's it delivering value to customers? And I'll figure out all the other stuff later. And going to work with investors that I trusted and had a relationship with me, let me take that approach as opposed to trying to be somebody who I wasn't from day one. And as you've brought in other investors in subsequent rounds, has your approach changed? Because you know, presumably the company's at a different stage and it has different needs. So how have you evaluated the appropriate investor for that time yeah. of the company's I mean, life? I think I say when I talk to entrepreneurs who are, I call it doing God's work. I'll talk to entrepreneurs who are you know, doing C rounds, A rounds, B rounds. They're like, I can't believe you run a $100 million revenue company. My reaction is, I can't believe you're starting a company from scratch. <laughs> so it's a mutual admiration society. But I say to them, go talk to the right people, do everything you can to get the best valuation. But at the end of the day, what you really need to do is look yourself in the mirror and say, these are people I'm going to be working with for the next decade. And being an entrepreneur or a CEO is an emotional roller coaster of a job. And these are going to be the people that are with me at the highest highs and the lowest lows. And so I think understanding who you're going to be working with is critically important. I'll give you an example. We raised an $80 million plus round in June of this year. There's a firm called Silver Lake Waterman that led that round. I met the Silver Lake team in 2018, and we had spent time with one another. They understood what we were trying to do with the business. They're an investor in a company called Telium, who's a partner of ours. So I share a passion for surfing with the CEO of Telium. So he and I had always gotten along very well, a guy named Jeff Lunsford. And I felt like I knew the Silver Lake team well. The Silver Lake Waterman team felt like they knew me well. They'd seen me talk about what we were trying to do with the business in 2018, 2019. And then they could look at our track record of execution. So we were both very much known quantities to one another. I think another thing is kind of the right level of fit. Like Silver Lake Waterman is not a go, 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 chase the absolute highest growth company that in 2020, 2021 was burning capital on fire to try to chase an extra five or 10% of growth. They're sort of a pragmatic, moderate, grounded, be smart about how you deploy your capital, go drive the most growth you can, but don't go crazy. That sort of fits our management style. And so for us going through that process of getting to know each other over two and a half, three years gave them a lot of confidence in investing in the company and the leadership team and gave us a lot of confidence that the way that we were going to run the company, the Silver Lake Waterman team will challenge us with the rest of our investors, but they're not going to try to contort us to doing something and being something that we're not. And I think finding that fit is really important because especially if you haven't been through fundraising before, you're like, oh, I get a 10% higher valuation of these people. I'm like, you better be really comfortable that you're going to be on the roller coaster with these folks and the highest highs and the lowest lows, those lows are going to be really challenging. And so making sure that you've got somebody that you're ready to work with for a decade or more is really important. Well, you work with a whole set of investors. Is there anything that has surprised you to the positive you know, during this journey about how an investor was able to help the business? I think you learn that different investors have different strengths and hopefully they realize those strengths and those lean into those strengths. So I'll give you a view on some folks on our board. So Mark, for example, from Upfront is just 
an amazing marketer and can think about marketing and the brand in a way that's very different from anybody else. He also has a tremendous network. And so when we go into fundraising mode, or we did our first acquisition a year and a half ago, like strategic transactions, Mark is incredibly helpful, incredibly helpful. We have another independent director named Brett Queener, who is actually an ex-Salesforce exec. And Brett has the longest operating history of anybody on our board. So when we're going through the budget and we're looking at all the different ratios of how much are we spending on sales and marketing or R&D, or we're looking at various operational components, you can sort of see the whole boardroom look at Brett and be like, Brett, what's your take on this? They know that's his sweet spot. Even Troy from Excel is a great mind around technology and specifically marketing technology is super helpful with me thinking about product strategy, thinking about like benchmarking. I think about Scott Hilbo from HIG, great quantitatively and in, in looking at the, the business, the way an investor will look. So I think what you learn is that different investors bring different things to the table. And then how do you lean into those things and get the most out of them? And then hopefully they'll also be aware of where their strengths are and what their limitations are so that the person is a financial whiz, isn't the one who's sitting there telling you like, you really need to think about your PR strategy like XYZ when they haven't actually really done stuff with PR before. And I think most investors are pretty self-aware and they understand what they bring to the table. And then when they don't have that knowledge or expertise themselves, they're Really happy to go help you find that, you know, within their networks. Well, we're coming up on time. This has been a great conversation. I'd like to end with one last question. I think it's super interesting that you started out with a degree in international relations. What causes are you most dedicated to? I think for me, education is a big thing. Like as I think about my career and where I ultimately want to go, I've warned my spouse that I will never quit working. I don't know how I will retire. And it's not because I want to work all my life. It's because for me, as I go through my career, I'm super interested in intellectual stimulation. That's how I sort of stay young and stay fresh. And I have kind of an interesting family background. My mother's actually English. My grandfather was in the Royal Navy and my mom traveled around a bunch when she was growing up. She lived in Japan. She lived in New Zealand. That's how she ended up in the States as my grandfather was stationed in DC. My dad, on the other hand, came from South Alabama, very poor community went to college, educated himself, fought in Vietnam, came back, went into engineering, ended up starting his own company. So I'm a huge believer in kind of the power of education and just connecting people and helping people. So it's why, like with entrepreneurs, if they get connected to me to do a reference call for one of our investors, I'm like, call me anytime. Like, I'm happy to help. I'm a huge believer. Like, And this is what's great about Silicon Valley. Like, Knowledge is power. And so I think for me, one of the things that I want to come back to in my future is education and finding ways to help the next generation. And then I also think getting exposed to the next generation kind of helps keep you young and fresh and on your toes. Excellent. Well, Greg, thank you again for taking the time. I know our audience will find this very insightful. Well, thank you. I appreciate it and look forward to catching up again a few years down the line. Excellent. Excellent.